After a brief hiatus and what I count to be a a kind and helpful providential break last week from the intensity of these chapters in 1 Corinthians, I invite you to return with me this morning to 1 Corinthians 10. We'll pick up at verse 13. In fact, verse 13 is our text today. This is at page 957 in the uh, Pew Bibles provided for you, if that is helpful. You will remember who have been following this series that Paul has been urging the Christians at Corinth to pursue the Christian life with might and main, which urging has taken the form of both positive and negative messages. Run, fight, strive are the positive expressions of the Christian life. We're running for a prize, and and runners who run that way must make sacrifices along the way, must discipline themselves, will indeed suffer some discomfort along the way, and so on. But look at the prize. If Olympians dedicate themselves so completely and discipline themselves and suffer so much and make such sacrifices for a medal that hangs around their neck for a, a few moments... What must taking hold of the crown of life and glory and righteousness require of us? And on the negative side, Paul has issued some of the most jarring of warnings, very much echoing our own Lord Jesus' warnings. For example, in the Sermon on the Mount, concerning the kinds of temptations that desperately lurch at you, lunge to seize and drag you into sin, the likes of which caused our fathers to fall in the wilderness, as we heard about idolatry and sexual immorality and putting Christ to the test with our grumbling and complaining. Those are, of course, but a few species of the sins that we uh, are tempted to. You can fill in the blank for yourself since you know best better than anyone else in this room, how precisely you are tempted. Perhaps it's pride. As a matter of fact, for all of us, it's pride, isn't it? Pride that weakens us, pride that makes us susceptible to all the rest of those temptations and Sins. So the last thing we heard from Paul in verse 12 was this, Therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. Today's passage is a helpful counterpart to all of that, some pastoral encouragement for us who have come to grips with the realities and the difficulties and the dangers of the Christian life of the genuine, of every genuine Christian life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you know perfectly our needs, for you have made us and you have redeemed us. And if that were not enough, our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, has lived our life, has tasted all of the bitterness of this life, and so is a perfectly sympathetic high priest So in confidence in him, we ask for your blessing and help for your servants to hear your voice and to be transformed. In the name of that same sympathetic high priest, Jesus, amen. 
1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You've heard it said that there are two things that are absolutely certain in this world, haven't you? Death and taxes. Well, I'm here to add a third this morning to offer you this third certainty in the world, something that dogs all of us all of our lives until the last breath is exhaled from our lungs and we laid in our graves, and that is temptation. Those of you who have lived the Christian life for some time now, and those who have thought deeply about it, have developed some sensitivity about the nature of our constant spiritual warfare and battle. And you know this very well, that all day, every day, temptation lurks behind every door, always seeking us, always wanting to trap and to lure and to have us, rising indeed up within our own very hearts, and would take us, the world and the flesh and the devil, that unholy triumvirate, would take us and have us, if it could, and defeat us and utterly humiliate us. This is why Paul and all of Scripture goes to such great lengths to warn us, to, to call us to attention, to brace us against deadly temptation. Where it can be done, it tells us to avoid the tempting situation or the tempting person to the best of our ability, preemptively, preventatively, but all temptation cannot be entirely avoided, can it? We can't go around all temptation or under it or over it so the only way left to us is to go through it. By the way, before we go any further, may I point this out to you, that the word here translated temptation may also be legitimately translated trial or, or test, even testing. As in every language, words have many different meanings and many different shades of meaning. So which does Paul mean here? Well, remember Job. Remember how in the book of Job, Satan appears before God in heaven, and God asks Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Now, what I've always found interesting, so fascinating about this in Job, is that it is God, not Satan, who brings up Job in the conversation. This is God's idea. God initiated this. Satan, Satan takes him up, as you know, and all manner of affliction is unleashed on Job. Was this a trial? Yes, it was. Was there temptation? You bet. Curse God and die, his dear wife spit the words 
at him. And don't imagine for one moment that it was not sorely tempting for Job to do just exactly that. Remember the old gospel song, have we trials and temptations? Yes, both. And often woven right into each other. Temptation is a trial. It is, it is a, a test. And oftentimes, God's trials and tests take the form of temptation. Satan was tempting Job. God was testing Job at the same time. God was proving the righteousness of his son, that he was an upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil, while Satan was trying his level best to undo Job. Two sides of the same coin. Job resisted. You remember the temptation? He endured the trial. He passed the test, and his faith triumphed in the end. If you don't remember, go back and read Job again Today, if it's too much, read the first few chapters and the last few chapters. You'll get the idea. You can remember another occasion of tempting in the Bible, can't you? And testing. Very famous one. You remember? Yes, thank you. Jesus in the wilderness. Who led Jesus into the wilderness? God did. Specifically, Matthew tells us the Spirit led Jesus there. Who met Jesus there? Satan. What was Satan's intent? Simply this, to trip up Jesus, to be his undoing. One slip, just one slip, and the divine errand Jesus would was on would be totally undone. And Satan, on the other hand, would retain his rule, his power, his kingdom forever, thereafter affirmed and established. But at the same time, the Spirit also had quite another intention. In the same episode, the Spirit's intention was to prove the righteousness of the Son and his fitness as the Savior of the world. And Jesus passed the test. And as the theologians are wont to point out, on that day, Satan was defeated. Even three years before Jesus went to the cross. Was it temptation? Yes, it was. Was it trial and testing? Yes, it was that too. Fact is, we can't tell from our side of the veil, can we? From our puny perspective, what temptations are meant as tests by God, and whether God is testing our faith in this temptation or that, and frankly, it really doesn't matter, does it? There are so many things that remain hidden from our view that we don't understand and can't make out from our perspective. In fact, all of that helps us to accept the fact that the Bible itself uses the term ambiguously and is likely doing so here trials and temptations. The hidden things belong to the Lord our God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So let's look at those things that are revealed. God hasn't kept everything hidden from us. And what has Paul to say about our temptations and tests and trials? Well, the first thing to notice is that temptations, the temptations that you and I face, are common to man. 
Now, what does, what does Paul mean by that? Well, there's no superhuman temptation that you will face, that you have not faced or will face. And, and no matter how much we may think that the temptations that, that we are facing, that I'm facing today is somehow qualitatively different, worse somehow than, 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 than what our fathers and mothers faced before us. The simple fact is we're dealing with the exact same things they did. No, they didn't have the internet. But all of the temptations we face on the internet, they faced in spades as well in life. They weren't mass-producing products in factories by the thousands of pieces or by the ton, but temptations to falsify records or to pass along inferior products under the guise of quality were still the same. Dishonest scales are dishonest scales, whether they're weighing out shekels or tons. They didn't have punch cards or time clocks in the day, but the temptation to work as merely eye-pleasers or to cheat bosses out of time remained the same. They didn't have the telephone. They didn't have online chat rooms. But the temptation to gossip and to coarse joking was just as strong. Talk is talk, whether it's over the water cooler or or over the watering hole. A number of ways to kill another human being, even in the doctor's office, may have multiplied, but murder is still murder. Stealing is still stealing. Even if what is stolen never takes a physical or tangible shape, but exists only in cyberspace, in the cloud. You see, the external circumstances uh, might change, but the spiritual realities, the spiritual dynamics remain exactly the same. And on that rock must shatter any notion that my problems, my temptations are so much worse than what anybody else is suffering now. Nobody knows the troubles I've seen is a lie. Certain temptations may press more strongly on you than they do on me and vice versa, but let any notion that your situation is unique from everyone else die right here. And with that, also the temptation to blame your temptation or the way you are on God or on your parents or on your society or on the devil or on technology rather than on your own sinful nature. James writes in his short letter that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. All temptation starts in the same place, my brothers and sisters. Right here. Right here. Temptation is homegrown. Now, there is a rebuke in there somewhere for all of us, I know, but there's also, I think, some degree of comfort, too. On my favorite excuse, namely that my temptation is somehow different from what everyone else faces, vanishes. Yet it is still good to know that what I'm facing, everyone else is facing, too. We're all facing the same things. There's nothing special about me in that regard. 
Everything I'm tempted to do or think or say, everyone else is too. So no one is above temptation. That Christian that you admire so much, who is a model of the Christian faith in your eyes, that you would like to, indeed that you're trying to emulate, is running through the very same gauntlet as you are. How easily we place others on some pedestal, imagining that they somehow transcend, that they remain untouched by the struggles that bedevil us. But if we're honest, if they're honest, they'll acknowledge that temptation burns as hot for them in their hearts, if not hotter, perhaps in areas where you're not even barely tempted. The other consolation I find here is that temptation and sin are not the same thing. Temptation and sin are not the same thing. Even the choicest of saints face temptation. But that does not make them guilty any more than it makes you guilty. Many times, even within just the past couple of weeks in the Lord's providence, I found myself having to assure Christians that being tempted to sin is not the same thing as committing that sin. I think there's some lie of the devil mixed into all of this. But think about it. Good grief. We, we all have, every one of us, brought plenty of real guilt on ourselves. And we're all in the same boat in that matter. We've all brought plenty of real guilt on ourselves by what we've actually done. We certainly don't need to multiply that guilt by adding to the load those things we are tempted to do, but don't. If temptations were the same things as sins, my brothers and sisters, if being, if being tempted to a sin were the same thing as committing that sin, then the guiltiest, blackest, darkest sinner in all the world would have to be Jesus. Because nobody in all the world has ever been or ever will be more sorely and constantly under a non-stop barrage of hammering blows of temptation as Jesus, particularly during the years of his ministry. Yet he never sinned. He never slipped, not once. Not even in the teeth of all manner of temptation. And you know, there I find it yet another, maybe strange, but wonderful comfort in the commonality of temptation among humans because Jesus was a human too. God understands our, is a human, by the way. That hasn't changed. God understands our temptations and our trials because he, in Christ Jesus, suffered them, suffered all of them. The Bible makes a special emphasis of this point in the book of Hebrews. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He's been down this path on which you are going now and, alas, sometimes stumbling, sometimes falling, sometimes failing. 
But he's not standing alongside that path. Jesus isn't standing there as you're making your way along with his arms crossed, shaking his head, wagging his finger at you and going, tisk, tisk, what a loser. What is his problem? What has she got going on? No, no. Jesus says, my child, I've been there. And I know exactly what you're going through. Every temptation you face, I've faced. And in fact, he's faced even more, hasn't he? You've never been tempted. I, I dare say that not a single one of you in this sanctuary has once been tempted to turn a stone into a loaf of bread. So when you pray to Jesus for help and temptation and trial and testing, he knows exactly what you need from him, from personal experience. Which brings me to the second point, the second thing to know well here, that in the face of temptation, you have God's help. You have God's help. My brothers and sisters, he sympathizes, yes, but he does so much more than that. Out of his sympathy, he acts. Because he is perfectly sympathetic, having himself suffered when he was tempted, as the writer of Hebrews has it, he is able to help those who are being tempted, and he does. Writes Paul here in Corinthians, God is faithful. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape. God is faithful, you know that. You hear it every Lord's Day, you hear it and sing it and declare it in this very house on which, as the psalmist puts it in a psalm written, he says, Psalm 92, for the Sabbath day we declare his steadfast love in the morning worship and we declare his faithfulness in the evening worship service. You read his faithfulness every time you open your Bibles. His faithfulness reaches to the sky. And nowhere is his faithfulness more clearly to be seen by us than when we are face to face, indeed, in the very teeth of our temptations. And that in two ways. First, in the fact that he never allows you to be tempted beyond what you can bear, beyond your ability. And second, in the fact that he comes to our rescue. He always comes to our rescue. When we are tempted and tried, he always coming to our rescue provides a way of escape. Even if it, isn't this marvelous? Even if we, in our dullness and stupidity, have placed ourselves in that temptation, still he comes with a rescue plan, with a way of escape. Remember how the Lord rescued Lot. Who put Lot where he was? Lot put Lot where he was, and yet God came and rescued him. The Lord has proved, is the proved protector of his people, John Calvin wrote. The Lord is the proved protector of his people, and in his keeping you are secure, for he never leaves us, his people, on our own. Therefore, once he has taken you under his own faithfulness, you have no need to be afraid. 
so long as you depend wholly on him. For he would certainly be playing us false if he were to withdraw his support at the moment we needed it, or if when he sees us in our weakness bow under the load, he were to draw out of our struggle still further, or draw out our struggle still further. This, dear flock, is why we pray, as we often do in this house, as we did this morning, those words, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. He, our sovereign Lord, sovereign even over our temptations and our trials and our tests of all of our lives, leads our steps, supplies us our strength, carries us through all manner of tribulation, and delivers us. God is personally involved. He's personally involved in your trials and your temptations by setting limits on them and by providing a way of escape from them. Oh, is there some mystery here? Well, of course there is. You know, but immediately we might ask, well, why not spare us the temptations to begin with? Or even more difficult for us to understand how he could ever lead us into temptation anyway, as Jesus taught us to pray. Why would Jesus teach us to say such a strange thing in prayer? If, as James has it, God tempts no one to sin. I'm not going to pretend to be able to explain this to you, how God can be at one and the same time both sovereign over your temptations and yet not the author of your temptations. It's one of those things with which we live. We do know from the Bible that he often tests his children, don't we? That he puts us through deep, deep trials and tests, like he did his servant Job, tests and trials that include sore temptation. But though I cannot understand this, or much less explain it to you, how this works in the heavenly council, the fact that he is utterly sovereign, isn't that a silly thing to say, utterly sovereign? Sovereign is sovereign. The Bible says he's sovereign. That means no qualification. He's either sovereign or he's not sovereign. The fact that he is sovereign over every circumstance of our lives, indeed over all creation. That the devil, according to the Bible, has to ask God's permission before he can even lay a finger on a Christian. Only assures me all the more that I will never face any temptation that has not been measured to the ounce by my loving Heavenly Father for my good, that I can endure, endure that temptation by His grace, and that He will provide me an escape route. Now, it will often be a surprising route of escape, not always. A car has four doors on it. You know, get the hint. There's four ways out. But sometimes in a surprising way, he gives a, gives an escape route, like an army surrounded on every side by the enemy in rugged territory suddenly hears from the scout an announcement that there's a narrow route of escape he's just discovered through the mountain pass. Or like a ship 
being driven headlong for a rocky shore and an inevitable shipwreck there, suddenly you'll find that gap in the otherwise unhospitable coast through which to pass to the place of security and of peace. God will supply it. He has promised to supply it. You will never face a temptation that there is not some way out. But here's the thing. You got to take it. You must take the route of escape. When God opens the way of escape, like, like the door of Potiphar's house for Joseph, you must, like Joseph, run through that door. Which brings me to the last point. The third thing to note well here and, and briefly is that in the face of temptation, brothers and sisters, you must act. You must endure through the trial by following the way of escape that God provides There will be an end to this trial, whatever it is, this test, this temptation. Unless that is, of course, you choose to linger there to keep feeding this temptation, keep flirting with this temptation, keep toying with this temptation until it grows and grows and grows. Or groveling in this. Over the past few weeks, I've been listening to Oscar Wilde's book, The Picture of Dorian Gray. It's a fascinating and instructive story, psychological novel of the descent into darkness of the human heart and the black hole of irresistible vortex that sin must be to an unregenerate person who has not Christ. As Dorian who was at the beginning of the story, so pure and pristine, and, uh, of course, in worldly terms, coming near the lowest point of his depravity and debauchery, approaching a place filled with all manner of darkness, the narrator breaks into the story and he makes this observation. There are moments, psychologists tell us, when the passion for sin so dominates a nature that every fiber of the body, as every cell of the brain, seems to be instinct with fearful impulses. Men and women at such moments lose the freedom of their will. They move to their terrible end as automatons move. Choice is taken from them. And conscience is either killed, or if it lives at all, lives but to give rebellion its fascination and disobedience its charm. That may be true for a person who has not the Holy Spirit living inside him as you do, who has not the light of God in their hearts, that they do genuinely lose the freedom of their will. Indeed, the Scripture says plainly that such such people in such a state are bound to their sin. 
They're slaves to their sin. That's how the Bible describes them. They have not freedom. But not Christians. Not you. Not you, my brothers and sisters. You have a choice. And you have a conscience. And you have the freedom. You have them all. God has given it to you, and he's given you a pair of legs. And you know what to do with them. Run. There is no shame in running from temptation. There is wisdom. In fact, there is glory. You have the choice. God has given this to you to flee through the mountain pass, through the gap on the coastline that he will, not may, that he will always open for you to find relief from the trial, from the test, from the temptation. It's not true, as one of Wilde's characters puts it, that the only way to get rid of temptation is to yield to it. Not for a Christian. You're not subject to temptation, my brothers and sisters. No one is making you sin. You have a choice. By God's grace, you have another option. And by God's grace, take it. Run, run, run into your Savior's arms. He will be there. Remember that song from the days of your youth. Yield not to temptation, for yielding is sin. Each victory will help you, some others to win. Fight manfully onward. Dark passions subdue. Look ever to Jesus. He will carry you through. Amen.